Welcome to this podcast on digital responsibility. There's a vibrant community across the world at the moment driving forward corporate digital responsibility, which includes a range of aspects from digital ethics, digital for the environment, sustainability, digital well-being, inclusion, accessibility, and more. My name is Rob Price, one of the founders of Corporate Digital Responsibility back in 2017. If you'd like to know more, have a look at the website corporatedigitalresponsibility.net. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Digital Responsibility Podcast tonight. I'm delighted to be joined by Ken Banks from Yoti. Ken, would you like to um, introduce yourself and talk a bit about uh, the things that you've been doing and what you're doing at Yoti? Sure. So uh, thanks, Rob, for inviting me along uh, to chat. So a quick summary of my background, because we could spend the half an hour trying to fit all of that in, I guess, if we were so um, so inspired to do. Uh, so originally from Jersey in the Channel Islands, uh, went into the finance industry after leaving school, got very early into IT, learned to code when I was 13. And technology has been something really that's been a part of my life, really, or a thread of my life ever, ever since. Got interested in global development thanks to Live Aid. Um, despite all of the faults and the problems and the controversies of the whole thing, it, it introduced me to a world of imbalance and injustice and poverty that I didn't realize was there. Decided that I really wanted to do something with my life to contribute to solutions to the kind of problems that I saw. Started traveling to Africa, build schools, build hospitals, um, did some conservation work. Um, then fell into mobile tech in the early 2000s, got offered a, a piece of work after breaking my leg in Nigeria while I was working in a primate sanctuary, ended up looking at mobile tech for about a year and just got very, very interested in how mobile phones seem to be empowering local communities or, or seem to have the potential, I should say, to empower local communities in ways that a lot of projects previously or technologies previously hadn't managed to do. Uh, as a result of that, I developed a, uh, an SMS platform called Frontline SMS in 2005, which was a very low-tech solution to mass messaging in developing countries, mostly last mile, low internet, low resource environments. That went a bit bonkers after a couple of years, uh, raised 3 million. We ended up with users in 190 countries, 30 million people benefiting from various social uses of that. Wrote some books, drifted around, did consulting, and then in 2018, uh, I joined Yoti as head of social purpose. I got a bit tired of the global development community and the work and felt that a lot more could be done with the resources that they had. I was going to bed a bit angry. I didn't want to be going to bed angry. So I just stepped away and very thankfully found a role at a company which very much reflected the way I felt that we should be using technology to uh, produce social good. So I joined as head of social purpose. Um, and since I've been there, I've been working specifically on building on top of what was already there around ethical, socially conscious, doing well by doing good uh, to build a number of initiatives, which, are, as I mentioned, kind of build on top of what Yoti had already started. So that's a very, very quick run through 40 years, I suppose, of, of what I've been doing. That's, that's brilliant. And one of the things that I kind of read um, when I first came across Yoti was this this strong focus around um, ethical use of data at the core of the business. Um, so, so protecting that identity, which, given the press of the recent years, kind of seemed to be quite a different approach 
um, and, and an important approach in the context of uh, thinking about society as a whole. How, I'm interested as you continue to grow, how that's maintained. So, so how do you keep that strong focus, that strong ethical focus through everything that you do? I mean, of course, as a, as a business grows, there's always going to be pressures to, to, to charge forward for market um, opportunities and, and for, for profit. But I think there's quite a few checks and balances in place at Yoti, which I think work very well to make sure that before we do anything, we, we think long and hard about whether or not it's the right thing for the business to do. So, for example, we have we have seven guiding principles that um, that that run through all the decisions and all the departments and the work that everybody does. Things like encouraging personal data ownership, enabling privacy, um, making Yoti available to everybody, being transparent. We've also signed up to numerous numerous pledges, Safe Face Pledge um, as a biometrics institute, ethical principles, um, fair tax marks. We have a guardian council, which is an independent body of individuals who basically help Yoti with some of the trickier ethical challenges it might be facing or questions it might have as a business to make sure that it doesn't do things that perhaps go against its, its founding principles. And we have green teams and internal ethics teams so there's, there's quite a lot in place, which, although, of course, it might not stop the company doing something in the future that it perhaps shouldn't do, it certainly makes us all stop and think and say, hmm, does this actually match what we signed up for, what we signed up to do as a business? Should we do it? And, and in most cases so far, uh, in my experience, we've actually gone, not gone ahead with certain things, which could have perhaps been a, a faster route to profit because they went against the principles that we had. It's, it's incredible, actually, to, to listen to you talk about it and just draw the parallels between, um, for example, um, the, the, the conversations that we've had with the leader recently, where, where they would have said many of the same things. I mean, they've, got, they've just implemented a CDR council, but, but the principles of it are, are, are very similar. Um, the, uh, the focus on ethics, the focus on green, the focus on doing the right thing for society shines through both organisations. Um, I'm especially interested in the mechanics of how something like the Guardian Council works. Is, is that something that continues to evolve or, or, or is very clear in terms of the governance that was put in place and, and, and how that works year on year? To be fair, I think everything's evolving. Um, nothing has really particularly stayed very still uh, since I joined. So we're always looking for opportunities to um, to live out our social purpose and to do as much as we can to ensure that the tech that we produce does generate social good and not just um, profit. Uh, the Guardian Council, interestingly, I was on it two years before I joined the business as a full-time employee, I was on the Guardian Council. So in a way, I had a little bit of a, a bit of a, a sneak preview of what I was letting myself in for. And one of the reasons I did join the company was because I was incredibly impressed by how hard it worked to do the right thing. And the Guardian Council did have teeth. It wasn't just a little a whitewash, greenwash, purpose wash exercise where they just nodded and agreed with what the business wanted to do. The Guardian Council had teeth. It was able to challenge decisions. Um, it helped shape the seven guiding principles. Um, it's also helped with privacy policies and other things and said, hang on, are you really sure you should be doing that because it's a slippery slope? Well, that goes against A, B or C. So 
Um, the, the, the Guardian Council meets every quarter. Um, the agenda is set by the business, um, but the Guardians can also set agenda items. And they're usually three to four hour, you know, incredibly engaging discussions. And in the interest of transparency, the minutes are put up on the website. So anyone can, in fact, read what was discussed and what the outcomes were, which I think, you know, almost goes a step beyond where really Yoti has to go. So not only is it trying to do the right thing, but it's trying to be as transparent as possible about the tough decisions it sometimes has to make. And I think that transparency is a key thing. And, and, and actually, in season one, I talked to Tony Fish, who sits on the Digital Ethics Advisory Panel for an Australian bank. And he made exactly that same point. Everything that's set as a challenge for the advisory panel is, is recorded. Every advice is recorded. And therefore, whether it's followed or not, that audit trail is, is transparently there for everyone to see. Um, in terms of kind of getting to your thoughts on social purpose in the context of Yota, I think I read one of the things that you'd done was quite a bit of global research, um, which again rang a bell because one of the things that we did was was uh, ask, ask everybody around the world how they felt about technology. And I think it was really interesting to see how people felt about the use of data, for example. It, 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 it's quite an emotive subject. Um, are there the kind of particular things that you'd highlight from that around things that you learned, maybe things that surprised you? So one of the things we did um, when I when I joined, uh, we looked at what we were offering and whether or not we were achieving as much as we felt that, that we could with it. Uh, so before I joined, one of the main thrusts of the, the social impact, social purpose work was, you know, Yoti would be free to charities, free to nonprofits. Um, our meeting space was available free to any charity in London that wanted to hold a meeting. Um, we had selfie days, so staff could spend five days a year fully paid volunteering for charities or causes they cared about. So there was there was already the foundations of a very interesting, interesting program. I was just interested in how we could scale that and interested in whether or not we were focusing wholly on the right things. And in, in order to do that, we decided to carry out some research globally to see whether or not, in particular, a product that the company had, which a lot of my friends in the humanitarian sector had felt may have considerable potential might actually be as useful as we thought. Um, my many years working in the humanitarian tech world taught me that it's very easy to run out into the world with a solution to something which isn't even a problem for many people, or it's the wrong solution to the wrong problem, or just the wrong solution altogether. And I really did not want to fall into that trap. And I think Yoti certainly didn't want to fall into that trap. So we carried our research across Africa, across Southeast Asia, speaking to end users, speaking to people on the ground um, to try to get a sense of what, what it was that they wanted um, out of a digital identity product, one which didn't require the internet, one which didn't require smartphones. Because I think it's important to realize that you know when you build a technology and you say select smartphones as the platform, you are making a conscious decision in many cases to exclude people because you know not everyone's got a smartphone half the planet doesn't have a smartphone so you know you you've restricted your market opportunity by half and we were very concerned given one of our principles is that yoti should be available to everyone that our core platforms did not work for everyone and so we had solutions which which potentially could i think to your last point about what surprised me most i was particularly surprised by the awareness among grassroots communities of the importance of, of data privacy and security. And many spoke of a fear of their data being stolen, getting in the wrong hands, government, army, um, 
nefarious organizations getting hold of their information and and them not wanting that to happen and i almost felt in a sense there was greater awareness among these communities particularly refugees or displaced people around the risks of data loss and privacy issues than there almost were in the uk where people kind of just wash over privacy policies or just don't worry too much when when bad things happen so I think for me, that was probably the one thing that surprised me the most out of that, that research that we did. But we're always very keen to make sure we speak to the right people and we speak to the end users and we get right down to grassroots level when we start to think about how we might be helpful. And I think one of the things that uh, resonated for me in the survey that we did was that geographic variation of how people felt. For example, I remember people in Southeast Asia were more open to AI making decisions at a government level than humans. Rightly or wrongly, right, kind yeah. of that, that in comparison with the West was, was a different kind of answer. So I think it is really important to understand how different um, countries, cultures, etc., react to the use of information and for their benefit. What do they get out of it? The, the, and I think maybe it goes back to something you said in terms of when you delivered the um, SMS platform. I mean, one of the advantages, if it's the right phrase, and, and, and the explosion across Africa especially, was because there wasn't a legacy to change. It, 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 there was the opportunity to do something different um, and, and people welcoming that because it enabled something to, them to be able to do things that they'd not done at all before, not just changing what they'd done before. No, absolutely. And, you know, when I first started working on, on mobile tech in particular um, in the early 2000s, you know, people then were figuring out in the UK, how can we allow people to order pizza by SMS? How can we get people's, you know, live football scores to them via SMS? Then you travel to Mozambique and South Africa and you speak to people who think, how can I transfer money with this phone? It will save me walking for one day to the local bank. Yeah. Or how can I use this phone to connect with a service that might help with my health? They were completely different conversations. And for, and for me, they were far more important conversations to be having rather than the generally frivolous stuff. You know, people in the UK were gobbling up crazy frog and all sorts of stuff. Yet there was this huge social change potential that was out there, but it wasn't really being had here. You had yeah. to go there in order to see it. And, and maybe that's a good link into, I think, some of the things that you're doing within the OT in terms of the fellowship programme and the innovation hubs. You're, you're reaching out to those communities still to engage them in the continued evolution, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. I think the, um, the, the, the theme that runs through pretty much everything we're doing, particularly in social purpose at YOTI, is that you know, we're thinking about how we can trust and empower the end users and how we can better understand their predicament, their concerns and their needs. So before we've done anything, we've, we've, we've gone out and, and spoken to people. And I think the fellowship program um, in particular is a really, a really nice example that, you know, if you want to understand issues around digital identity, say in South America, what better way than to fund a researcher in South America who actually has gone through those issues and challenges themselves for a year, you know, pay them for a year to do their research and to produce a paper which can help further discussion and debate where they live, doing the same in South Africa around ID fraud, which is a big, a big problem, and doing the same in India around Aadhaar, where there's been a huge amounts of exclusion because the technology didn't account for people that perhaps couldn't give fingerprints or didn't account for people that didn't speak the language that much of the Aadhaar publicity came in for. And so for me, I, I 
you know, I feel pretty honored to work at a company which is willing to put money into that kind of research, into understanding those sorts of problems when there is zero commercial interest. We're not going to gain a single ounce of commercial value from doing that work, but it's important work. Um, and also this African conservation challenge that we just launched, where we're trying to figure out whether or not verified identities within online communities in Southern Africa can help foster more meaningful, authentic, trusted, respectful debate around conservation issues. So we've gone to local partners in South Africa. We've gone to community organizations. We're working with them. And so we know this is a problem because they tell us it's a problem. We think we might have a solution. So we're going out together to try and figure out you know, whether that's the case. And if we find someone that can build something, we'll put the money in to do that. I think, I think as you talk, I mean, when we originally defined corporate digital responsibility, we had a series of kind of parameters that, that, that defined what it was, sustainable automation, uh, inclusion, et cetera. But at the heart of it was trust. Mm. And, and at the heart of everything you've just talked about there is, um, is trust. It's that trusted relationship, not, in not just in terms of between Yoti or, or you as individuals and those communities, but in terms of what you do with their data. And, and, and enabling it to be the right thing to give them benefit. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I think one of the things, going back to an earlier question, this, this product which we, we researched, this offline non-smartphone-based um, product, a little, little RFID key tag, in fact, so something that you would tap. Um, when we did that research, our, our, our developer tech instinct was to back up the data that was written to the keys on a, on a device. So if a key was lost, uh, it would be easy to replicate that key. None of the users wanted that. Not a single person wanted any of their data to live on anything other than this piece of plastic. Because holding this piece of plastic and knowing it was the only place their data resided gave them an absolute feeling of, of comfort around what was happening and control over their data. So we made sure when we built the tech solution, we didn't do any backups. Now that's created other problems for us, but it, again, it's something that we probably wouldn't have learned or understood if we hadn't gone out and asked people. Uh, and, and we're very committed to, to doing it the way people want us to do it. You know, why bother going out and asking questions if you don't like the answers? You know, you you go out to ask questions, and then you should act on those and on, on the responses that you get. Um, and so, I'm I'm very pleased that that's what we actually do. Great. One one of the common themes, if you like, that, uh, of a number of people I've talked to is uh, is is that they are B Corp organisations, and I noticed that YOT too is a B Corp organisation. It in in a sense. Um, it, again, it doesn't matter, I think, whether somebody is B Corp or whether they're focusing on social purpose or whether they want to talk about CDR or digital responsibility. It comes back to the principles of, of, of the impact that they're trying to have on the planet. So, so for an organisation maybe who isn't B Corp or who, or who hasn't kind of got a focus around social purpose or, or making a, a more positive impact on the planet as a whole, what, what maybe would you kind of give us as, as your top three tips of some, what should they explore? What should they do differently tomorrow to shift their organization in a more positive direction? Sure. So, um, you know, during the journey I went through at Yoti, I, I wrote a, a blog post, in fact, called Adventures in Social Purpose. And I, I just wrote down everything that, that we had gone through and the process that we had followed. As you say, you know, Yoti was one of the founding B Corps in the UK. So, 
at its very at its birth, in fact, it, it was it was highlighting and showing and demonstrating its commitment to doing things the right way. I'd say over the last three years, developing the work that I've done, I think this if there were three things I would share share with you, um, probably out of out of many others. I think one is that that CSR doesn't equate to purpose. So I've worked in many organizations that have had CSR teams and CSR programs. If you think about the extractive industries, um, Shell, BP, Rio Tinto, organizations which traditionally, you know, by the very nature, have to destroy things in order to, to, to live and make money as businesses. Um, they all have CSR programs and CSR is usually something tucked in a corner, which lives in a little separate department and people look at it occasionally to feel good. Purpose isn't that. Purpose is ingrained throughout the whole business. So I would say the first thing is, is that if you're genuinely purposeful as a business and want to become purposeful, it's, it's to ensure that the, the doing good, the socially beneficial part of what you do flows through everything that you do and everybody that works for you and every function of your business gives out that purpose and involves everybody in delivering that purpose. So it's not just a little thing that sits in the corner. Another thing that would never have been possible, I think, without, um, without this is senior management buy-in. So everything that I've proposed, all the discussions that we've had, I have the full support of the senior management team at EOT. And I, I for one moment, believe that we would not have been able to do half the things that we've done without that buy-in. So I think that's absolutely key, is that if you work for an organization that is, it has, has ambitions to be more purposeful, to be more purpose-driven, and the management buy-in is not there, it's almost just not going to happen. So, so that, that's something to look for if you want to work for a business and develop purpose within a business is to make sure that at the very highest levels, you've got that buy-in. And maybe the last thing is, is to engage in a little silo busting, as, as I would describe it. So try to look beyond where you work. Try to look in other industries. Try and look in other sectors. Try and look at other organizations, how they have delivered and developed their purpose. Think about what you might learn from what they've done. Because one thing I found in the, the tech and humanitarian sector was that people that worked in agriculture rarely went and spent time talking to activists or conservationists or health professionals because they always felt they should sit in a room with other agriculture people because that was the best way to learn how to use tech best in agriculture. I think one thing that we've done at Yoti is we've connected with all sorts of organizations in all sorts of different sectors on the social purpose topic to try and learn and understand how they've done it and to try and figure out what we might learn from people doing things in, in other areas. So that, that I would say would probably be the third thing is, is to, to not to take the blinkers off and look far more widely at what other people are doing. Um, brilliant advice. Absolutely. And, and thinking of, of where we all are in the world at the moment, um, mid-pandemic mid for many, hopefully to some extent in the UK towards end of pandemic, uh, but still clearly impacting everyone. Um, what, what do you think? social purpose will look like in 2022, for example, as, as hopefully everybody's emerging into this new world, whatever it is, however kind of we operate, live. Um, I think there's been a, a, a conversation thread through many of these podcasts that says there's an acceleration and, and, and a stronger feel of community. So what, what's changed? What do you look forward to next year? Um, yeah, I think... Um... So, you know, social purpose has been been around for a long time. So it's, it's nothing new. And there have been purposeful business around, businesses around for a long time. And, you know, Unilever may be one of the more recent, earlier sort of examples. Ben and Jerry's, you know, companies that you look at and they wear their purpose on their sleeve and they've got, 
you know, senior management buy-in, as I mentioned earlier, where they're very committed to driving, driving purposeful activities. I think the last, in the last year or so, social purpose has really been forced into the public consciousness. I think with COVID, with Black Lives Matter, um, with all the upheaval of what's gone on over the last year. And I think in the next year or two, I think it will be less niche than it has been and it'll become more an expected activity. So I think young people, consumers, um, they'll increasingly demand to work for and buy from companies that reflect their own beliefs and values. At the moment, I think that's still a little bit fringe, but I think we're increasingly finding at Yoti that the kinds of people that we're attracting to the business to work for us are particularly drawn to Yoti because we are living out things and a way of doing things that they, that they believe in. So I, I think that will become more mainstream. I think businesses that don't embrace purpose and don't embrace ethics and, and the more socially conscious way of doing things will increasingly struggle to, to get the quality staff, to get the human resources on board that they need, unless they can throw huge amounts of money, of course, at it, because you, know, you can always often buy talent. But um, in many cases, uh, I think that's, that's my hope for the next year or two, that social purpose is, is now here to stay and it will become far less niche and far more mainstream. I think you're spot on. And, and I think the, uh, the fight for talent over the next kind of few years, um, for all those reasons that you say, will be the thing that drives organisations across the board, recognising that they have to do things better. They have to evolve. Uh, Ken, thank you. It's been brilliant talking to you. I hope our listeners get in touch. We will post also for those listening uh, perhaps that kind of link to the blog advent, blog adventures in social purpose that you mentioned and maybe also the seven principles uh, seven guiding principles because i think they're key things and key assets that other organizations might look to learn from as they start their own journey and thank you sure thank you rob <laughs>